Good to have you with us this morning at the Antioch campus of Blue Valley Baptist Church. You may have noticed my jacket uh, that I'm wearing this morning. The, uh, the, the reason I'm wearing this jacket, frankly, is because at Christmas I tend to dress a little crazy and it also irritates my family to no end, which makes me want to wear it uh, more uh, throughout the season. I will tell you what one of our senior adults said to me between services. Uh, she came up to me and she said, you know, I, I donated a, a tree skirt to Goodwill last year. I'm glad to see that they put up a uh, good use for it. So um, she's been excommunicated. Uh, so anyway, but I, I do enjoy Christmas and Christmas 2019 uh, marks my 13th Advent season with you as the lead pastor of Blue Valley Baptist Church. And that's that's frankly crazy for me to think about because here's what that means personally to me. It means, it means that almost half of the Christmases that Julie and I have spent married have been spent here as, as the pastor of this church. It also means that almost a third, in fact, a little over a third of the Christmases Blue Valley has been in existence as a church, I, I, have, I have been here as the lead pastor. That's, that, that's something that, that a lot of pastors don't get the opportunity to experience, that kind of longevity. And it, it, frankly, it makes my heart happy, but there is a downside to it, and anybody who works with me knows what that downside is. Having now preached 13 Advent series and having now addressed over and over again the about 175 verses that are associated with Christmas in Scripture, I... I approach the writing of Christmas sermons with great dread. Um, there's a lot of me sitting at a computer screen, staring at a cursor, uh, blinking, because I find myself wondering, what is there that I haven't said and they have not heard, at least from me? And, and, then, and then something will happen every year that causes me to see these things in a new light. So this year we're doing something we've never done before, that I've never done before. We're going to take the four books that open the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all of which chronicle for us the life of Christ, and we're going to look at these four books, these witnesses to the life of Christ called the Gospels, to see what they witness to as it relates to Christmas. And we will, of course, start with the first of these books, the first book in the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew, and see together how Matthew is a witness to the hope that Christmas represents. Why don't you find in your copy of God's Word, please, Matthew chapter 2. In 1847, a Frenchman named Placide Capot, a wine merchant by vocation but a poet by avocation, was commissioned by the parish priest in his town in France to uh, write a, a poem that would be read at Christmas Mass. And so he set about to do that and was so taken when it was all said and done with what he wrote that he commissioned a friend named Adolphe Adams to put that poem to music. And it wound up very quickly sweeping across the nation of France and became deeply loved. The name of the hymn was Cantique de Noël. Well, it was so popular in France that it very quickly hopped the ocean and was loosely translated into uh, English and became known to us as O Holy Night. And my favorite line in O Holy Night comes very early on in the song where we are singing together a thrill of hope. A weary world rejoices. 
And Matthew provides a witness to that hope which prompts the rejoicing of a weary world in three different ways. Here's the first way. Matthew is a Christmas witness to hope for the outsider. A witness to Christmas hope for the outsider. Look at verse 1 of Matthew chapter 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all of Jerusalem with him. Now, obviously, this starts with the the appearing of a star in the sky that Eastern mystics, magicians, pagans interpret as being a sign that a new king had been born to the Jews. Now, frankly, they're connecting those dots was something of a supernatural event anyway. The only passage of Scripture they could possibly have looked to that might say something like this comes in Numbers chapter 24, verse 17, which says, A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. The Jews interpreted this as a prophecy for the Messiah, but it is very, very doubtful that they believe this actually represented a star coming up in the sky as witness to the fact that that's probably not how they interpreted it. Matthew, who over and over again in his gospel says that certain things are fulfillment of certain scriptures, does not say that this is a fulfillment of a particular scripture. But clearly God has caused them to see something in this star which they interpret as a sign of a Jewish king. And so off they go on their journey and they check in with the one that you would think they would need to check in with if there was indeed a new king born, and they check in with Herod. And Matthew tells us that when they do, he's troubled. Read that as ticked off, angry, furious. And then we're told that all of Jerusalem was troubled with him. Don't read that as ticked off, angry, furious. View that as being terrified. Here's why. By the time you get to this stage of Herod's already rather chaotic reign, he is full-blown crazy. This is historically verified, and the way that that uh, craziness manifests itself is in just kind of wanton destruction of those around him that he views as a threat. In fact, historically, Herod had members of his own family executed if he believed they were a threat to his reign. Caesar is legendarily quoted to have said, of Herod, it is better to be Herod's sow than Herod's son. This is a man who was not warm and cuddly and was prone to fits of murderous rage. And so he's ticked off. And all of Jerusalem, knowing what he's capable of, begins to wonder and worry whose head is going to fall now. And so Herod begins to scheme. Look at verse 4. Herod hears this, and assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. He calls together all of his Old Testament experts. He says, where do the Old Testament text point to the birthplace of the Messiah? They correctly point to a scripture, actually a contraction of two scriptures, one from uh, Micah and one from 2 Samuel, which says 
that the Messiah was going to be born in Bethlehem. And so he, he has a plan. It's not hard for us to figure out. In fact, it's so easy to figure out that we're never told explicitly what the plan is. But he says to the guys, why don't you go and find this fellow for me and then let me know so that I can come and worship him, so that I can put this down once and for all. And so off they go. They go on their little trip. And at this point, we figure out that this star business is supernatural. Every year, it's going to show up very quickly. You'll see a Google article or a Yahoo article saying, what was Bethlehem's star? And you'll read it, and you'll go, ooh, I feel smarter. You're not smarter by reading that, because everything in this text lends to the notion that this is all supernatural. And in fact, this particular section where they go on their journey tells us it's supernatural because they actually are following something that comes to rest over the house. It has GPS, God positioning system. Um, it goes with a jacket. And it comes to rest. It comes to rest over the house. And so we know that they're being guided and they're being led here. And so they bow and they worship. These pagan mystics bow and worship Jesus as their king. And then they are warned by God in a dream. Don't go back to Herod. He's trying to harm the child and they sneak out of town. And we never, ever hear from them again. So... I said, beginning this point, that Matthew is a witness to hope for the outsider, and that is seen very clearly in the wise men themselves. Matthew very clearly intends for us to draw a comparison in these verses between the wise men and Herod specifically and the Jewish people in general. The conclusion that we are meant to come to is that those who should have been in the know, those who were believed by themselves to be the target of God's mercy, and the only people that God cared about redeeming reject and ultimately try to murder and do murder the one that God sends to them. But those who are on the outside, pagans, Gentiles, those who are deemed by the, the religious elite as being unworthy of the mercy of God, of, of being not, not worthy of any kind of kindness that God would show to him are the ones who were actually given the grace by God to recognize who Jesus is. This is a precursor to the kind of mission that Jesus was sent to have. In fact, Jesus himself will be recorded as saying later on in Matthew, in Matthew chapter 8, verse 11, I tell you, many will come from the east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, in the kingdom of heaven. He is saying there, it is not God's intent merely to pursue those who believe themselves to be worthy of the mercy of God. In fact, what God is up to is actually pursuing those who feel that they're most unworthy. Those who are on the outside, my sin is too great, my knowledge is too small, my concern too little for God to ever care about me. If that's what you think, Remember that God used a scripture that really didn't mean what the wise men took it to mean. Wise men who are thousands of miles from the holy city of Jerusalem and says, come to me. Come to me. Matthew 
by simply telling us about the wise men lets us know that there is hope for the outsider. And then Matthew is also a Christmas witness to hope for the oppressed. Look at verse 13. Now, when the wise men had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and he took the child and his mother by night and departed, fled to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. So there we have one of those noteworthy Matthew statements that this event of the Messiah and his family fleeing to Egypt was to fulfill prophecy. And he quotes from Hosea chapter 11 verse 1, a passage where Hosea the prophet is actually looking back on the Exodus, which we're familiar with, the idea that God appeared in a bush to Moses, calls him to be the Redeemer, and bring the people out of their slavery and out of their bondage and out of their affliction in the nation of Egypt so that they could come into the wilderness and they could be his people. As a matter of fact, Matthew and the other gospel writers over and over again let us know, and if you know that this is happening, you see it everywhere, let us know that the Exodus event of being called out of oppression in Egypt foreshadows what God is going to do with the Messiah, that, that, that God is going to, through the Messiah, call us out of our spiritual oppression, is going to call us out of the afflictions that we feel because of sin and bring us to himself. Now, there's an awful lot of heat and very little light being shed in our world today on the subject of justice. In fact, the word justice itself has become something of a trigger word for many in our world. Conservative Christians, particularly conservative American Christians, have long and rightly understood that the source of all injustice is sin and that the only solution to the injustices that we see in the world is a Savior. And so we have always believed that our chief weapon for fighting injustice in the world is the gospel and that there is a moral imperative for us to share the message of that gospel with those in bondage to their sin around us. But there has been a tendency, particularly among American Christians who are evangelistically driven, to care only about that and to only give a hat tip of concern to those who are hungry and in poverty and who are homeless and who are sick and are experiencing injustice who need to hear our gospel message. It's as if we say, you know, all of that stuff is not as important and I don't really care about it. I want to give you this message. Now, the message is important, but an implication of that message of being set free from sin, is that we also care about the physical and emotional and relational condition 
of those who have been affected by sin. And so in the vacuum of all of that, liberal Christians have stepped in and begun to emphasize caring for the hungry and poverty and homelessness and sickness and injustice to the neglect of the gospel, essentially saying that the great commission of Christ was to not go into the world and make disciples, but it was instead to go into all the world and feed and enrich and house and liberate. Thankfully, a younger group of conservative Christians have recognized the disconnect with all of that and have begun to try to restore balance to all of this by recognizing that it's not an either-or proposition, preach the gospel or help people. It's a both-and deal. The gospel remains our chief weapon to battle injustice, but an implication of our message of liberation from sin is that we battle the societal injustice that is systemic in the world because of sin. It started, really, with the previous generation professing advocacy for the unborn, but this new generation has expanded the battle against injustice to not just stand up for the unborn, but also the immigrant and the poor and women. But rather than see this expansion of the gospel that has been the result of correctly understanding Scripture, old guard evangelicals dismiss this new generation of conservative Christians pejoratively as social justice warriors. But the common theme in Scripture is God seeing the plight of the oppressed. In fact, God begins his tasking of Moses with these words. He says, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. Please note that to bring them to the mountain to hear the voice of God, he had to set them free from slavery. So we cannot, in good conscience anymore, as conservative Christians who believe that the gospel is our chief tool for setting people free from injustice, preach a good sermon and then say, go be warm and well-fed and do nothing about it. We no longer need to, to let our preferred news outlets disciple us and start letting this disciple us and care about the eternity of people and where they are now, because that's gospel. That's the Bible. That's being faithful to the witness of Scripture. And so, Matthew is a witness to hope for the oppressed. And finally, Matthew is a Christmas witness to hope for the grieving. Let's look at the most troubling verses in all of the Christmas verses in Scripture. Look at verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he'd been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time he had ascertained from the wise men. When did you first see the star wise men? Uh, about two years ago. Okay, we're going we're gonna to take care of anybody in Bethlehem under that age. Then was fulfilled... What was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah? A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they were no more. Rage shakes Herod. 
and toddler boys and their families suffer horror of a magnitude that is beyond imagination, even though the scope of the atrocity is not what we tend to think. We read these passages of Scripture and we think of modern-day Bethlehem and we think thousands, maybe hundreds, but maybe thousands of boys are slaughtered. But scholars point out that given the small nature of Bethlehem at that time and the surrounding region, at the uppermost there may have been 20 boys whose lives were taken. That's horrible, but one of the things that, that critics of the truth of the Gospels point out, there's no record of this anywhere except in Matthew's Gospel. But it is rightly pointed out the reason that it, it might not be mentioned elsewhere is because on the scale of the horrible things that Herod did, this is very small. Just to give you an idea what a peach this guy was. When he knew he was dying, he called dignitaries from uh, around the region to come and stay essentially with him on death watch. And he left orders that at the moment his death was announced that those dignitaries were to be murdered. So that it couldn't be said, no one cried on the day Herod died. That's who he was. So it doesn't rise to the scale of the terrible things that Herod has done to have been noted maybe by, by the, the historians of the time. However, the most troubling aspect of this entire episode is Matthew's statement that this immense suffering somehow served a grand purpose. And so it was fulfilled. And he quotes the prophet of Jeremiah. And so we have to come face to face in this Christmas passage with the uncomfortable awareness of the relationship of God's plan and human suffering. And so you say, yeah, that's, that's bad. Give me the answer, preacher. So here's the answer. I don't know. I don't know. Here's what I do know. I know that there are some things that are God things and that I'm not Him. Now, I'm not advocating being intellectually or spiritually lazy, but what I am saying is that God has purposes that we frequently do not understand. And frankly, anyone who gives you a simple answer to these few verses of Scripture um, is either arrogant beyond description or they really haven't thought about this very deeply at all. But here's what we can know by looking at this. We can know that God uses suffering for purposes that are frequently beyond our comprehension. We can know that sometime God fulfills His purposes for our life, not by taking us around suffering, but taking us through suffering. And we can trust when God does that, that He is Lord over our circumstances. How do I know that He is Lord over our circumstances? By looking at this, by something that would be very easy to overlook. Herod took the visit of the wise men and their understanding that a king had been born in Jerusalem and what the Old Testament text said at face value. He doesn't, he's not a skeptic of it. In his mind, he everything, all of his responses are, you're right. God is doing this. I need to do something about it. And so he acts to try to thwart the purposes of God. And he cannot. So where's the hope in Matthew 2? Not in the answer of why. And if you go to the 
idea of first cause, you go all the way back, would any of this have happened if, if these wise men hadn't been caused to see a text out of context and come to Jerusalem and find Herod? I mean, we can see that there's hope because of God's purposes in it, a purpose that triumphed over suffering, a, a, a triumph ultimately accomplished at the cross. The cross where Jesus took what is ultimately at the root of all human suffering, which is sin, sin which is completely outside of himself because he is God, and he took all of that sin on himself, and then he triumphed over it once and for all at the cross so that we can see Romans 8, 28, which says God causes all things, all things, underline it, put an exclamation point beside it, God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love God those called according to his purpose. God is at work in you both to will and to work his good pleasure, even in the things that are very difficult to grasp and understand. I could go on and on in Scripture where we see that a God who in spite of all of the things that trouble us in the world is constantly, relentlessly moving forward with his good purposes for the world and for us. There's hope in Matthew for those who suffer and those who grieve. So what about today? Where is your hope in our passage today? Well, there's no doubt in my mind that there are outsiders here today. There are people who may be relational outsiders, who have no real deep friendships, or there may be people here who are spiritual outsiders, who have come to believe that their sin is too great or their ability to grasp God's Word is too small for God to ever care about them. But hear me, there is hope for you, and His name is Jesus, who was made known to outsiders called wise men so that they could bow and worship Him. There's no doubt in my mind that there are oppressed people here right now. There are women and, and perhaps men who are being emotionally controlled or physically abused by a spouse. There are people here today who, no one knows it, are being sexually harassed at work. Or people here today who experience a disadvantage because of your race or your economic situation that you don't ever mention because people around you would think that you're just whining or crazy or have misread things. But hear me, there's hope for you. A child was protected by a father God who sees injustice. Jesus, the child refugee, is a witness to hope for you. And there's no doubt in my mind that there are grieving people here right now. Grieving the loss of a spouse, loss of a child. Perhaps you're grieving some other loss, maybe the loss of an opportunity, maybe the loss of influence that you once had. But hear me, there's hope for you. Jesus is a witness to the hope that there is a purpose to suffering that often transcends what the eye can see or that we will ever understand. So Jesus himself is Matthew's witness to Christmas hope. He is hope in himself for the outsider. He is hope in himself for the oppressed. He is hope in himself for the grieving. 
And my prayer is that whatever it is that you hope for in life today, you will find in Him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.